Welcome to the 345th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I talk about the United States presidency, COVID, and the history of pandemics with presidential historian, Lindsay Chervinsky. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free, as always, to suggest yourself as a future guest. We're coming up next week on the 350th episode of COVID Calls. We are just around the corner from launching the COVID Calls website and archive. And we still are scheduling guests at this point into October. So please let me know your suggestions. Thank you. As of today, September 23, 2021, there are 4,719,379 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. I'd like to acknowledge the work of the Twitter feed and Facebook group, Young and Severely Affected by COVID, and also Cleavon MD, both of whom I rely upon their incredible work in bringing to light the life stories of those who've suffered and died from COVID. I'm gonna read two of those now. Headline is St. John's County High School Junior Dies of COVID-19 Complications. The 17-year-old student at Pedro Menendez High School was described as gentle and funny. This appeared September 6, 2021, written by Jessica Clark and appeared in First Coast News, Jacksonville, Florida. St. John's County, Florida High School student has died of COVID-19. First Coast News confirmed with people familiar with the circumstances of his death. Jonah Stiles, 17, died Friday morning, September 3rd, 2021. His principal at Pedro Menendez High School in St. John's County sent a letter to parents describing Jonah as a talented actor who had a wonderful sense of humor. Jonah was a high school junior. There's no official word how he contracted the virus. School started in St. John's County on August 16th. Sources say Jonah tested positive the following week and the week after he died. Jonah's family is in the grieving process and decided not to comment on his death. First Coast News reached out to one of Jonah's teachers who sent the following statement, quote, Jonah was an amazing, talented actor. He was a student that came in and put a smile on my face every single day. He was a natural performer. He was a phenomenal singer. I never had a student that was more passionate about theater than Jonah. He helped start the reinstated drama program at Pedro. My students and I loved him and will forever respect him for the talented performer that he was. I feel honored to have been his teacher and to have watched him grow as an actor. I'd like to read a second obituary. Headline is 13-year-old Oklahoma City boy described as bright and playful dies from COVID-19. This appeared 
August 27, 2021 on KOCO News, Oklahoma City. This piece is by Christine Stanwood. COVID-19 has claimed the life of an Oklahoma City child. Clarence Johnson III, known as Trey, age 13, was about to start the eighth grade. His mother described him as bright and playful. Trey was taken to a hospital by ambulance after he had trouble breathing. He was placed on a ventilator and a short time later lost his life. We know what's being provided for us, you know, meaning that he's sad that he had to take our baby and he needed more, you know, he needed more than we do. We're just thankful that he can make it easy for us to get through this process because it's so hard, said Trey's mother, Kendra Johnson. I got to tell him, reference to her son, moments before, here, don't be scared. Then I heard about a minute later, maybe I heard, call it, say, call ahead, 6.03 p.m., she said. This is his mother describing the trip to the hospital. Trey's time of death is etched in her mind. Trey is his nickname. He's the third, so we call him Trey, she said. He was about to start eighth grade at Oklahoma City Public Schools. He was really loved by a lot of people. He was truly loved by a whole lot of people, and that makes us happy, makes us really happy and sad at the same time. It's bittersweet because he was such such a happy kid, his mother said. He said weeks ago, her family tested positive for COVID-19, but Trey was the hardest hit. He was a pretty big boy, and I was scared that if he caught it, something like this would happen. You know, we did the best we could with trying to lose weight, she said. It can happen to anybody. I mean, it really can. She's at peace knowing she'll see Trey again one day. There was nothing I could really do but try to save my baby. I know it isn't in my hands. I mean, that's God's hands, she said. Trey is the fourth Oklahoma City child to have died from COVID-19. The first pediatric death was in July of 2020. A 13-year-old Comanche County girl named Anna Carter died. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today and let me introduce my guest, Lindsay Shervinsky. Dr. Lindsay M. Shervinsky is a senior fellow at the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University and the Kundrin Open Rank Fellow at the International Center for Jefferson Studies, as well as serving as a professional professorial lecturer at the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University. She received her BA with honors in history and political science from George Washington University. She also received her master's and PhD from the University of California, Davis, and her postdoctoral fellowship from Southern Methodist University. Previously, Dr. Shavinsky worked as a historian at the White House Historical Association. Her writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Ms. Magazine, The Daily Beast, The Bulwark, Time Magazine, USA Today, CNN, and The Washington Post. Dr. Shavinsky is the author of the award-winning book, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. Lindsay Shervinsky, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. I'd like to start the way I generally do, just find out where you're calling from right now and, and get a snapshot of the pandemic as it is. I'm um, calling from Central Virginia. Uh, things are okay here. The vaccination rate in Northern Virginia is very high. It's a little bit less in Southern Virginia, but um, not too bad. The state, depending on where you are, is pretty respectful about masking mandates and uh, voluntarily adding, you know, masks to their daily lives. 
I would say that that's more true in Northern Virginia than in Central or Southern, but um, all things considered, it's not a bad place to be. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a memory of this pandemic era also. Some, you know, I've been asking this question for months now, and um, I'm often surprised, even, especially with historians, how hard it is to zoom in on one thing that really sticks in your memory. But I, I'd like to ask you if you don't mind. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been pretty fortunate in my COVID experience. I don't think that I've had it. If I have, it's been asymptomatic. And um, no one in my family has been too hard hit. So that's, I'm very grateful for that. So I think most of my, you know, memories and my experiences have been along the more sort of professional line. My book came out three weeks after the pandemic hit really hard here in the United States. And um, so, you know, naturally my entire, you know, book tour was canceled and, and all of those things. Um, and I remember the day that, you know, I really thought it was going to, you know, a couple of weeks, I'd cancel a couple of things and then maybe I'd cancel them and then move them to the fall. And I remember the day my husband had been sort of trying to prepare me for the fact that this stuff was going to get canceled. And I really didn't want to think about it because um, I had been planning for it for so long. Um, and the day that he finally said, you know, there's really, there's really not going to be a book tour. And, um, it was, it was a really hard moment to acknowledge it. I, I, I think I burst out crying. Um, but you know, on a slightly more, not comical, but interesting note in terms of a historian's perspective, I was working in the office at it at the time, um, at the white house historical association. And I remember the last day I took the Metro into work. And this was when we were still thinking that, you know, you didn't want to touch anything. So none of us were wearing masks, but we were like afraid to touch the poles or the doors on the Metro. And now in retrospect, that just seems kind of ludicrous. Well, thank you for sharing those details. That last one, really, I had forgotten this, but, you know, going to the grocery store early days in maybe April of last year and wearing uh, I guess I should have known better, but wearing something that would barely qualify as a mask at this mm -hmm. point, but being absolutely fastidious about the wipe down of the stuff when you got it, when yep. you got it home, which seems to resonate a little bit with your Metro, Metro story. I'm sorry about the book tour. That's okay. You know, I've made the most of it. I've had a wonderful opportunity to do a lot of online things and met a lot of people that I don't know that I would have met otherwise because everyone's been so entrepreneurial and creative and in some ways probably reached audiences that I wouldn't have met otherwise um, just because I don't know that I would have, you know, given a talk in Iowa, for, for example. Um, but if all things considered, I would really like there to not be a pandemic the next time I have a book come out, if I can help it. Yeah, let's see if we can work on that. I, and, and, and absolutely, you know, have talked to lots of authors who had books come out in the mm -hmm. middle of, I mean, it's been so long now, how could we not? And, and that exactly as you described, there's really something about the opening up of possibility that Zoom, you know, presents, but at the same time, it's not being in the room uh, with the stack of books and that face-to-face -face communication. So yeah. I hope you get uh, I'm sure you've got a second book in the works, and I'm sure you'll get that opportunity soon enough. And I think also as a presidential historian, these are really dramatic times. And I, and I say that with some reticence. Historians are really re reluctant to point to any moment as a turning point. But for the presidency specifically in these last two years, I don't know how you rest. 
Uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's a challenge. You, I, I often say that I really like writing about historic moments, but I would be okay living in a little bit more of a boring time. There is no doubt that the last several years have been historic. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to know whether that's true when you're living through the moment, but I don't think anyone doubts the last couple of years have been quite unusual. There have been some down downtime moments, but not a whole lot between like October 2020 and February 2021. Those were a couple of really crazy months where it felt like every day was this huge story that had to be addressed. Now, your book, again, is The Cabinet, George Washington, The Creation of an American Institution. And you've been writing also for popular outlets and you keep a regular column, I guess you could call it, in Governing, which people can find at governing.com. There's some really great essays there that everybody should check out, and I'll put a link up for that in a minute. But let's start um, by talking about George Washington and talking about, I guess, before the presidency and the issue of vaccination during the revolution. It's one of the stories of yours that I think has gotten a lot of interest and traction. So George Washington was not an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> no, he was not. That's a so, weird way to set up a discussion <laughs> these days, but I think we have to say it that way. I don't know that anyone has ever asked me a question starting with anti-vaxxer and George Washington in the same well, sentence, it. but it's a good, it's a good way to start. Um, so the big, there were a couple of big threats at the time. Uh, the, the real significant one was smallpox. And the reason that smallpox was such a threat was because a lot of the European populations had a lot of natural immunity. There had been smallpox epidemics cyclically for centuries, but a lot of the North American populations did not have that same immunity, especially Native American communities that really didn't have a whole lot of interaction with European travelers. But that also applied too to a lot of the residents of North America and then the British colonies if they hadn't traveled to Europe. And so Washington was actually one of the few Americans who did have immunity. He had um, contacted uh, smallpox when he was in um, Barbados with his older brother and he had survived, so he had immunity, but he recognized that it posed a huge threat and smallpox tended to hit in winters. It tended to hit uh, particularly dense population centers was exacerbated by poor hygiene, um, lack of running water, lack of, you know, sewer systems, the things that we sort of take for granted in the 21st century. So naturally, when you're thinking about those conditions, an army camp is a particularly bad place for a smallpox outbreak. And Washington was having a lot of trouble keeping soldiers in the army camp anyway. There was a lot of um, there were a lot of people who weren't re-upping their uh, their terms or they were deserting. So he decided to issue an order that all new soldiers coming into camp and all existing soldiers had to receive the smallpox inoculation. Now, this inoculation was not the, you know, very sterile sort of quick process that we get today when we go to the doctor's office and, you know, they swab your arm and they give you a shot. This was very gruesome. And the way the process worked was a doctor would take a infected person and swipe a knife through one of the infected pustules on one of their limbs, then take that dirty knife. The, the point of it was to be covered with the infected 
stuff and slice it under the skin of a healthy person. Now, this was not like a vaccine today in that you sort of got the antibodies without getting the illness. You often did get smallpox, but it was usually if you got it via blood as opposed to through the air, you got a much less virile version of it. And so you would have a much um, easier time overcoming it. Now, not everyone. Some people did get severe cases and people did die from it, but at much lower fatality rates than a full-blown smallpox epidemic. And so Washington implemented these orders. He he enforced it. His soldiers were forced to get the inoculation. And it was really a strategic decision when he thought about the war effort. What was the position of the Continental Congress on all this? Well, initially, the Continental Congress was very concerned about the smallpox inoculation. There wasn't, it's really important to keep in mind, there wasn't a great understanding of how this disease spread. And so they were very worried when, you know, people observed individuals getting the smallpox inoculation and then getting sick. They thought that the inoculation would actually spread the disease as opposed to uh, you know, I guess it did in theory make people sick, but it made people less sick than they would have been otherwise. So initially they banned smallpox inoculations in places like Philadelphia because of the high intensity of the population concentration in the city. But by uh, 1776 and 1777, it was clear that uh, there were starting to be smallpox outbreaks, especially around the Philadelphia area. And so Washington basically overruled them. And you point out in this in this essay that um, he did tell people keep it keep it quiet. You know, send your soldiers to me. The vaccinate send them vaccinated, or we're going to do that. But don't mention it. What? Why? Why did he feel the need to keep it quiet? Well, his main concern was that when someone got the inoculation, it took them a while to be back in fighting shape. And so, if even if he did this inoculation in stages huge portions of his forces were going to be unable to fight. And the same was going to be true with new troops that were coming in from the South or new troops that were coming in from places like New York City. And so he was very concerned that the British would get wind that, you know, a huge portion of the army was out of commission and would seize that opportunity and attack. So he was really trying to make sure that the temporary weakness of the army was not something that made its way to the British forces and it didn't become a much larger long-term weakness. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls. We're talking about presidential history and pandemic and COVID with historian Lindsay Shravinsky. So let's stick with Washington and, and move the timeline up to his to the presidency and the formation of the office, which occurs against the backdrop of three terrible yellow fever epidemics um, and, and that whole era, of course, throughout the United States, but the most famous ones were in Philadelphia, which was the seat of government at that time. That's right. So yellow fever was something that was sort of endemic to 18th century life and early 19th century life as well. 
Um, in places like New Orleans, where there wasn't ever really much of a deep freeze, it sort of always was in the background, especially sort of late summer, early fall, when the mosquito population really exploded. Yellow fever is transmitted by an infected mosquito bite from one person to another. Um, but because it was sort of always present, the population gradually developed antibodies and then mothers would pass those down to their children as well. In places like Philadelphia and New York City and Baltimore, where there were deep freezes, yellow fever was not sort of natural to the area. And so that meant it had to be introduced. And usually it was introduced by a merchant ship that had water that was infected with mosquito larvae that carried the yellow fever disease. And then once it arrived in a place like Philadelphia, where the wharves were quite literally rotting and the, you know, sort of waterfront was a disgusting, you know, morass of sewage and garbage and animal carcasses, which was sort of a natural playground for the mosquitoes, it then exploded. So in 1793, which was the most famous of these outbreaks, it tended to break out in August, which is when sort of the end of the summer, it was a very hot and humid summer. And so there was this terrible outbreak and pretty much everyone that could afford to flee the city did. And that included the federal government. Pretty much everyone went home. They tried to get to a more rural location. And that sort of started a pattern of the government doing that. Um, almost every summer they would flee the city in August, and if they if they didn't feel safe coming back to Philadelphia in October or November, would actually usually meet someplace like Trenton or Germantown before coming back later in the winter. So there's no sense that Washington or his cabinet members felt the necessity to stay in Philadelphia and either deal with the it wasn't a federal city and this is largest city in the state of Pennsylvania, but they felt no need to stay there and try to organize the relief effort? It's a great question. So usually one secretary would sort of stay behind to basically like gather the mail and send it on to people to sort of be a point of contact for federal government business. But what's really interesting is in the 1790s, there was no expectation of federal government intervention in what we would think of today as public health. It was just not considered to be a federal issue. It was a local issue. And so local offici officials were often expected to take measures to try and prevent these types of pandemics or to mitigate the um, effects of them. And I know we'll talk about there's a, an outbreak that occurs a few years later, which there's a very successful example of this local effort. So it was really, um, you know, there was almost no discussion. There was no expectation that Washington would do anything. Um, if anything, if any, you know, branch of government would be expected to do something, maybe it would be Congress, but I really see no evidence of that. Instead, it was the Philadelphia officials who were expected to provide relief and care um, and, you know, services, especially for the poor or for the ill, which they kind of failed to do because the outbreak was so bad, there was almost no one to provide that care. It's really interesting. I mean, I used to live in Philadelphia and taught a course on the history of Philadelphia, and there's a tremendous output of, um, you know, common for that time, political tracts. Uh, broadsides, uh, poetry, uh, in trying to make sense of the disaster and also, of course, trying to find some sort of um, political economy of credit and blame. Most of it falls to doctors who were in dispute about the, the ideology of the disease and how to take care of people. And Benjamin Rush, who was 
uh, one of the most famous doctors and politicians in America at that time, had a quite aggressive, what he called heroic medicine approach um, to yellow fever, which um, included bloodletting. And, and he was hard to argue with because of his status in society. So I wonder, you know, in a situation like that, too, for Washington to, to wade into that, even if he had somehow wanted to, it would have set up a very strange sort of political calculus, I think. I agree. One of the most fascinating parallels of the 1790s and today was how politicized the pandemic became. So Federalists blamed immigrants for bringing in the disease um, and bring, blamed immigrant ships for bringing in the disease and introducing it to the cities. Republicans blamed the conditions of the cities and they thought that urban centers were um, you know, sort of bastions of disease and sin and corruption. Now, both of these things actually were true. As, as I mentioned, it was both ships coming into the city, but then also the conditions of the city. But both of these positions were also rooted in um, sort of political biases. Immigrants tended to support Republicans and they opposed Federalists. So it was easy for Federalists to blame them. And Republicans tended to have very little support in cities or urban centers, or at least the Atlantic seaboard. So that was really where Federalist support was localized. So it was easy for them to blame those regions for the pandemic. So I just think that, um, you know, it's such a fascinating parallel. And that also extended to the types of cures, which is something we're seeing again today as well. Benjamin Rush was an ardent Republican. And so people who were Republicans went to him, whereas Federalists tended to go to other doctors. Hamilton actually got, Alexander Hamilton got quite sick in 1793. And his doctor recommended a course of hydration, sort of cooling compresses, which was actually much more effective than the very intense bloodletting, unsurprising. Um, and so the people who went to the Federalist doctors actually generally did a little bit better and survived at higher rates than the Republicans, but I'm not sure they really were able to observe that at the time. So let's talk about the, a later pandemic, not much later, and some of the same uh, characters are certainly known to each other. Let's talk about James Monroe, and I want to read a, a couple of sentences from an essay that you wrote, in, again, in Governing about this episode. Uh, you talk about Monroe. You say Monroe was an ardent Jeffersonian Republican. He adored the French. He abhorred the British, despised John Adams, frustrated with George Washington, and admired James Madison, Madison and worshipped Thomas Jefferson. He campaigned against the ratification of the Constitution. And yet, when serving as governor of Virginia, he didn't hesitate to take drastic steps to protect his state and limit the spread of the disease. So tell us about Monroe and pandemic. Yeah, so Monroe is a really fascinating character as a Virginia governor. So um, by 1800, when this pandemic breaks out in the late summer, again, this is the governor of Virginia, so sort of same climate as Philadelphia, maybe a few degrees warmer. People are starting to sort of get a sense of how these pandemics are working because they've now had several in one decade. And they notice that there are some um, people that appear to be sick in Richmond, and they were able to track them back to the port of Norfolk. Norfolk was one of, and is, remains today, one of the biggest ports in Virginia because it was sort of the first stopping point up the river for ships coming in from the Atlantic. And then ships would go from there to places like Richmond, Alexandria, other ports along the Chesapeake. And so what 
Monroe ordered was basically a very strict quarantine of Norfolk, of any vessels coming in and out of the city. And every city that had commerce with Norfolk had to set up a quarantine station in which everyone had to be observed, but they also set up housing and care for anyone who was sick. And all of these quarantine stations and the hospitals and the housing were all provided for by the state. So the state paid for all of this medical care, regardless of the person's economic status, ethnicity, race, you name it. And it's one of the first examples of a governor seeing public health as a common good, recognizing that taking care of one person is going to actually help take care of the other person. So there were still fatalities, of course, they did not have any cure for yellow fever at the time, but compared to the Philadelphia outbreak, which had a 10% fatality, this outbreak only had a 3% fatality. So it really did make a remarkable difference and it really helped spread the, or it helped prevent the spread of the pandemic across the state. Uh, that's a fascinating case to think with, and and do we have any evidence that Monroe reflected on on those actions in terms of evolution of state power? I mean, a governor's office and a president's office at that time, just mm -hmm. as today, um, th there's some connection there. A lot of governors see themselves as a future executive. In fact, probably every single governor of the United States <laughs> imagines themselves <laughs> as a future president. So. So it's not disconnected the way they think about using state power and one at the state level and then how that might reflect later on their role in the executive branch, isn't it? It, it is and it isn't. So um, as Governor Monroe actually used pretty heavy executive authority on multiple occasions, he also used pretty extensive executive authority to crush uh, slave rebellions during his time in office. However, Monroe drew a very distinct difference between the governors and the presidency. He, at the time, they believed very strongly in the federal system. And so the states were supposed to retain the majority of power in sort of the overall system. The federal government was supposed to be relatively weak, according to Republicans, which Monroe was one of them. And especially the president was supposed to be relatively weak in comparison to Congress. So of course, Monroe did become president and he did use executive authority as president, but he really saw those two positions as quite different and had no problem challenging or criticizing presidential authority while he was using it very vigorously himself as governor. Well, let's move the timeline up over a century now and talk about the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic. And I'm curious to think about the role of Woodrow Wilson. I mean, the federal government had grown enormously by that point in terms of not only it's just the size, but the executive branch had grown in terms of the complexity of the kinds of challenges that it would take on. What was Wilson's stance on the use of presidential power in the midst of that pandemic? So my understanding, I will have to confess, I'm not a 20th century historian, but my understanding is that Wilson did almost nothing like he didn't talk about the pandemic and that the federal government really stayed out of it such that it was a very much a state by state effort and some states were very on top of it and encouraged their citizens to take certain action and to wear masks and to sort of um, they wouldn't call it social distancing at the time, but what we would think of as social distancing and to stay outside um, and other states didn't and they tended to see much higher casualty numbers as a result. 
So at this point, even though the federal government is much larger and they're waging, a, you know, participating in a world war, it is still not expected that public health is going to be a part of the federal government's portfolio. Okay. Help me understand that a, a little bit more because um, as you wrote again in one of your, your essays, by the time we get in later in the 20th century, that has changed. And there's something in the 20th century dynamic um, that's, I mean, I just, the way you're describing it, you know, Wilson has more in, as a president, has more in common with George Washington than he does with, with Donald Trump or with Joe Biden in terms of the expectation of the president. Mm -hmm. So it's not to say that he might not have had concern and compassion, certainly in the way it affected the war effort. So, you know, the, the impact of influenza on soldiers was fell, you know, to his concern. But in the broader population, everything I've read checks out with what you're describing. I mean, that was left usually to municipal authorities. Um, so what changes over the 20th century to now make it a, an absolute responsibility of a president to, to take on that prerogative in the middle of a pandemic? Well, there are a couple of things. So executive power over the course of the, you know, 225 odd years the country has been around um, has seen some ebbs and flows. And generally wartime is a time in which there is more executive authority and it's usually concentrated on the war effort and maybe will trickle out into some other things like the economy or um, industry. But then sometimes it will sort of ebb back after the war. And so towards the end of the 19th century, there's an increase in federal authority, which Theodore Roosevelt uses very effectively. But then there's sort of this ebb back again. And Wilson is um, a big advocate of reducing sort of the federal government and federal power. Um, and, and so this is sort of part of his vision. And the real shift occurs in the Great Depression, the New Deal, World War II. And this is when society begins to see the federal government quite different than it had before and has very different expectations for what the federal government is supposed to provide, how involved the federal government is supposed to be in their day-to-day -day lives, what sort of activities the federal government is responsible for. So, you know, around the New Deal, we start to see a lot more social security measures. We start to see what we would consider to be the social safety nets. We start to see labor efforts. Um, there is a in the 19 in the 1950s and 1960s, there is a huge influx um, an increase of executive departments. There's a Department of Education that what we now think of as the Health and Human Services Department is created. There is a, um, a Department of um, uh, Housing and Urban Development or what we would now think of as Housing and Urban Development. And these are all new responsibilities that the federal government was never supposed to, at least by 18th century standards, was never supposed to participate in. But society in the Great Depression and World War II and with the New Deal developed a whole new series of expectations that fueled sort of what we now think of as the president's role in a crisis. And that's not necessarily partisan, I guess. I mean, that evolution of the presidency in the 20th century, which, which leads, again, back to the elaboration of the cabinet and experts who can then advise uh, the president and carry out the presidential vision of leadership. I mean, I'm just noting that what we now call health and human services was created in 1953 under Eisenhower. So it's not necessarily this idea that it can only be a Roosevelt Democrat that wants to grow the government. That agency is, is formed, I presume, because in reaction in part to the polio 
epidemic and it occurs under Ike. That's right. So the growth of the federal government was not a partisan issue. How that authority was used was obviously different under Republican and Democratic uh, administrations. But for example, Eisenhower was also responsible for the national highway system. So that was a huge federal government investment in infrastructure, which he actually saw quite similar to Washington as a national security measure. He recognized that if there was no way to get from the East Coast to the West Coast without it taking 90 days, that the United States was vulnerable to attack. Similarly, when we think of a president like Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan was a huge advocate for presidential power and presidential authority and used it um, pretty effectively. Even if he was sort of advocating for smaller government, he still was a huge advocate for presidential power. So it's definitely not um, a partisan issue. And even today, when we think about Trump and we think about Biden and, and our society is discussing what sort of potential reforms would be appropriate, um, sometimes there's pushback on, on, you know, presidential reform, depending on who's in office and, and not too many people are consistent about those reforms, regardless of what party is in office. Well, we'll come to the Trump presidency in a moment, because I have some questions about how you think the executive branch and the office might have changed in his presidency. But I wanted to zero in on one part of this because, you know, talking about, um, talking about Roosevelt and the way he used media and the way that he projected care, his affect of, of care. And also uh, as, a, as a polio survivor himself, mm -hmm. I wonder about the role of the presidency in terms of projecting care. That, mm -hmm. So maybe it's not the government is, is mandating something or providing resources to local hospitals or epidemiological data or whatever it may, whatever we expect to happen these days, whether it happens or not, but that a president uses the office and the incredible tools of communication at their disposal, whether or not they mm -hmm. use that to project empathy and care. Trump, I think anyone would say, Republican or Democrat, has to say that was just not his, not his persona and not he didn't use it strategically either. I mean, even if he didn't care, he didn't bother to try to project care as a, mm -hmm. as a strategic communication tool. So he didn't talk about people who were suffering. He didn't talk about people who were dead. There was no memorial activity. And I think of that in, you know, in juxtaposition to a, like Lincoln mm -hmm. or, or again to, you know, Franklin Roosevelt. And it just strikes me the difference that presidents, you know, the differences among presidents in the way that they, they use that power of the office to project empathy. Yeah, what what I think that that empathy piece gets at is we have this expectation, not only that the person in office will basically enforce the laws, which is the constitutionally mandated role for the president, but also that they will be a, a figurehead, they will be a symbol of the United States for, on the international stage. And we increasingly sort of focus on the bully pulpit aspect of the presidency, which is sort of the soft power parts, the lead by example, the demonstration of certain values and virtues, the um, ability to affect change through their personality or relationships, or just the, the incredible platform that they have to reach people. And certain presidents have used this with tremendous effects, Theodore Roosevelt, Abraham Lincoln, FDR. And one of the things that makes 
those individuals so effective is they're, they're very good at utilizing new types of media and experimenting with new types of communication. FDR's fireside chats are a great example. But they also, they do express empathy. They express concern for the average American and they made the average American feel heard and feel seen and understood. And that is a huge part of the job of the president because unlike Great Britain where they have a prime minister, but then they also have the king or queen and that is the head of state. And the queen often serves as that sort of empathy piece as the, um, sort of, you know, symbolic center of the nation and, and gives speeches in, in moments of great peril and crisis and goes and meets with people and the royal family goes and meets with people. And that kind of softens the edges of the prime minister if they're not a particularly, you know, warm individual. We put all of those into one person and it's a really tall task. And there's a reason so many presidents are bad at it, frankly. Um, what Donald Trump did that was so different is that he just didn't care. It wasn't that he tried and failed or that he maybe cared personally, but sort of was aloof publicly, like maybe Herbert Hoover. It was that he didn't care. He didn't um, seem to try to care. And that, I think, was something we still are sort of having trouble wrapping our minds around. I think it's 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 one thing to be incompetent, um, you know, and then I used to say with Hoover mm -hmm. and there's a continual revision of whether Hoover was incompetent. But I, let me just leave that there. Um, but to then to project care or lack of care. But when they both line up to be, be both incompetent and mm. to not project mm -hmm. care, that seems like a, a pretty dangerous place for a president to be, both as a strategist, as a communicator. You wrote in, again, one of your essays in in governing, you talk about this concept of dereliction of duty. So, mm. you know, again, sort of as we read backward, I think with our present vision of what the presidency is, might be natural for us to look back at these earlier episodes and say, well, how come people didn't hate Woodrow Wilson for what happened at that time? Or how come people didn't blame, you know, Washington for the 1793 mm -hmm. epidemic in Philadelphia? And, and you gave, I think, you know, quite compelling reasons why they didn't, but you wrote, um, thinking about Trump, about Trump, former President Trump's approval rating continued to fall during the pandemic because he refused to take any action at all. Americans in 1793 or 1918 may not have expected presidents to address a pandemic, but in 2020, they did. Yeah, I think that's right. And, um, you know, one of the challenges with the Constitution, and this maybe will lead us into our conversation about how the presidency has changed and evolved, is that the text of Article 2 is quite short and it doesn't say a whole lot about what the president is supposed to do. And so, so much of the system is built on norms and customs and those have developed slowly over time and are sort of based on social acceptance and are enforced by things like shame and political culture and election results. 
Um, but they also reflect an evolution of our society's expectations for what politicians should be. So, for example, it would no longer be appropriate for a president to own other individuals. It doesn't say that in the Constitution about what the president can or cannot do. Well, I mean, it says it in the uh, the amendments, but not, not about the presidency itself. But that would no longer be socially acceptable. Um, and so there are things that we have evolved as a society that we expect our president to be and we expect our presidency to try and help. And dereliction of duty doesn't mean failure always. Sometimes it means not taking action. And I think that's what a lot of people responded to in the previous administration. Now, what were you expecting to see when the pandemic broke out? What were you expecting to see? And as a historian of the presidency, you always, I know you have your antenna up, not only for the individual mm -hmm. actor, but also for the office itself and how those two are always sort of shaping one another. What were you noting? Well, um, this is sort of, I guess, a crass way to look at it, but um, Presidents are often made by their crises or um, put another way, the best presidents tend to, or the ones that we think of as the best presidents, the ones that are at the top of the rankings tend to overlap with major crises. And it's because it demonstrates an opportunity for leadership and for decisive action. And that's much easier for us to quantify. And frankly, it's much sexier, like winning a civil war is much sexier than you know not doing anything or not getting into a war, which is much harder to sort of wrap our minds around. So I immediately thought, wow, this is actually an opportunity for Trump to change the subject, to take action, um, you know, even if he wasn't particularly interested in taking action, there's this whole apparatus that in a lot of ways can kind of um, move without the president. All he has to do is get out of the way. And I think even basic competency would have resulted in a pretty significant increase in his approval numbers. And we saw this sort of at the very beginning, people were immediately willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Americans want to give their presidents their loyalty during a crisis. They want to be patriotic. And, um, you know, he actively interfered in the process of government. He actively prevented decisive action. And that, in a lot of ways, was even more damaging than um, inaction or, or failure to actually respond to something by actively interfering. He, I think, really cost himself the election and, you know, obviously cost thousands and thousands and thousands of lives. But do you think then that, I mean, I, I don't want you to try to prove something that didn't happen, but you do think that if the approach of the administration had been different early in the pandemic, that the electoral results may have been different? Yes. Which is, you know, quite a statement. Um, but I think that people were willing to overlook an awful lot. And um, as demonstrated by, you know, sort of his continuing support in his election in 2016. And if he had done just the bare minimum with the pandemic, I think he probably would have won. I often think about Hurricane Katrina, and if the timing of that had been one year earlier, uh, if George W. Bush would have been reelected, because that was so obviously a failure of mm -hmm. the federal government and people put in place by Bush who were obviously incompetent, mm -hmm. that it reflected, that it opened up, that it wasn't just that one incident. And I want to get your thoughts about this in terms of, of COVID, 
it's, it's that one incident, but then it sort of shows the whole of government that most of us are never thinking about. All not Maybe the cabinet secretaries, maybe people know those. I mean, mm-hmm. long, we might know who the cabinet secretaries are. <laughs> people are not paying much attention to that. Yeah. But then, you know, when the news media starts reporting, you know, a, a Katrina level failure and you start to see everyone who's involved. And we saw that, I, you know, again, I'm, it's hard sometimes to talk about this because we're also talking about the death and suffering of, of millions of people. But at the same time, you know, if you're trying to pay attention to what it teaches us about civics, mm-hmm. basically, Americans were getting a lesson in what their government is made of in 2020 and, and what all these different agencies do or don't do. And so, again, I guess, you know, my, my question to you is, is what you think about, I guess, how much it mattered, that failure. You know, Trump was not reelected, but also, you know, Americans may be learning all of the pieces of their government that they hadn't been paying attention to and how many of those are controlled in the executive branch. Yeah, I think that's one of the real sort of, I don't want to say silver linings, but it's one of the outcomes that has been perhaps most interesting to me over the last several years. And I would say actually going back to 2016 is people want to understand the origins of the system. They want to understand how it works. They want to understand how we got to our present moment because it's not always very clear. It can be very convoluted. And sometimes the answer is as simple as, well, that's kind of the way it's always been done. And so we'll get questions like, well, can he do that? And the answer is, well, kinda, yeah, until someone you know votes him out. And um, so much, I think one of the realizations that um, you know, so many people, so many Americans have had is that the framers of the Constitution and of the system um, did anticipate that there would be sort of, you know, megalomaniac um, leaders who would want to seize power for themselves. But they expected that the American people would vote them out. They expected that the American people would implement consequences. And they expected that impeachment would be a tool that could be used to hold people accountable and would not become such a partisan tool. Um, And so that I think has been a real disappointment is seeing how those expectations have not met with reality. Let's stick with the impeachment issue for a second. You know, so you're not only following the Trump presidency in terms of a pandemic presidency, but also um, the impeachment what did you learn or how did impeachment change? What does the Trump impeachment um, do to sort of enrich our understanding of of that part of presidential history? Well, what's fascinating about the process of impeachment is how few times it's been used for the president. And I think that's probably because um, it's not to say there hasn't been malfeasance or, you know, actors who have behaved poorly, but generally the political system sort of keeps them in check. Um, there are a couple of instances where the president has sort of escaped the, <laughs> I don't want to say the easy way or the hard way, but, you know, for example, President Harding, his cabinet was so corrupt. And I, it's it's possible that he would have been impeached had he stayed in office, but he died. So he basically escaped um, that form of censure. So, but the rest of the presidents, even if they did things that we would consider to be morally objectionable today, or if they were slightly corrupt, or if they made mistakes, they sort of confined their actions to a certain set 
of behaviors. And this sort of fit into that sort of norms and customs and social shaming and political culture concept. So there have only been a couple of impeachments. And of course, two of them have come in the last couple of years. And so it is a relatively new phenomenon and is a relatively new tool that we are exploring as a society, which given that our constitution is the oldest surviving national constitution, that's pretty remarkable. That being said, I think the impeachments during the Trump process, especially the most recent one, um, have demonstrated that it isn't actually an effective tool. And at least not in our partisan system today, when senators can be presented with overwhelming evidence and they will choose the party line instead of what is right for the country. And so to me, it is a broken tool. It is a broken part of the constitution. Um, it's not the first broken piece. It's certainly not going to be the last broken piece, but if there's to be true accountability, which I think there should be, and I would hope that all Americans would agree, um, that will require reform. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls. We're talking about the presidency and pandemic today with historian Lindsay Shervinsky. So let's talk about the Biden presidency. And as you pointed out, and I agree with you, Trump's um, mishandling of the pandemic and unwillingness to use empathy as a presidential tool, certainly, um, I would argue, uh, led to his defeat. And I mean, he wasn't popular before that, but it certainly, I think it, it, it's what uh, did in his presidency. So now we have Biden and he ran on a platform of competence. Let's, let's take a move towards competence. And I will use, and I don't know how many times he said this, I will use the full power of the federal government at my command to end this pandemic. I mean, a very simple message. Um, so how well has he done in living up to that? That is to say, using the power of the office of the presidency. And what do you think is in store for him? I mean, in particular, we're coming up to the midterms, which is always a, mm -hmm. usually a, a challenge for, <laughs> for a president, particularly a first-term president. Um, has he snatched back the presidency from what it became in the in the era of Trump, or are there features there now that have maybe become a little bit more lasting? Well, I think it's a little bit of a mixed bag. He has certainly, um, especially most recently with the um, new mandates that he has put in place, I believe he has used most of the tools at his disposal to try and combat this pandemic. What's you know interesting and sort of hard, I think, for me to understand. When Biden was elected, we were just beginning to get word of the vaccine. And after the election, the first sort of couple of, you know, immunocompromised and, and highly at risk individuals and the elderly were starting to get their shots. By the time he took office, the sort of coalition against the vaccine was starting to percolate. And um, that is obviously in full-blown strength now in terms of, you know, Florida as a response to the vaccine mandate is now starting to revisit and rethink their mandates for polio and the measles and the mumps, which I, I, I can't even wrap my mind around. Why you would want to welcome those diseases back to society is hard to fathom. So, you know, it's it's fascinating because I don't think when he was elected, he anticipated that there would be a portion of the population that was refusing this miracle drug. And had 
And he did ramp up efforts very quickly to um, get the vaccine out, to make it available, to distribute it, to make it as accessible and free, of course, to all Americans. And then there's this percentage of the population that just won't take it. And no matter what the sort of payoffs or opportunities are, they won't take it. And um, he is now starting to experiment with some of the other tools to make that a little bit less optional, uh, which I think is appropriate um, and part of sort of the presidential repertoire. But I don't think that anyone anticipated when he took office that that was going to be a part of the challenges. Um, so, you know, it has been, I think, a bit of a mixed bag. There have been a lot of other items on his agenda that have, you know, posed additional challenges, infrastructure bills, voting rights bills, the Afghanistan issue, uh, additional foreign policy. I mean, you name it, I would not want to be president today. So I'm grateful that I'm not called upon to do so. Um, there are certain elements of the presidency that have absolutely been restored in terms of Biden is an empathetic person. He expresses empathy for those who have lost uh, loved ones or friends. Uh, he, I think, is a. I think even his detractors would admit that he is a decent man, and uh, he loves his family and the sort of things that we would like to see in high office. There are elements that he's still grappling with that are left over from the Trump presidency. Um, for example, some of the immigration and border policies that were seen on the southern border, especially with the Haitian refugees that are currently coming in. Um, Biden is enforcing or has been enforcing, at least as of Thursday, September 23rd, uh, the Trump era policies. I think some of his allies are disappointed by that. I wouldn't be surprised if that changed. But I do think there is sort of a continuing negotiation over how much of some of the Trump era stuff should be continued. I'm glad you zeroed in on that period of time the interregnum period um, after Trump lost and, and because it's such a confusing and, and even just to reconstruct it the way you did that Trump's attitude was the vaccine will be the way out of this. He was uh, vaccine promoter number one and even his detractors have said Operation Warp Speed, however you think about its name, um, was an important uh, uh, you know, it was an important demonstration of the power of the presidency in the middle of a disaster to take some leadership. He was vaccinated. He nearly died from COVID, as far as we can tell. He received every kind of treatment possible. But then, I guess, you know, so much of the oxygen is taken up by what happened on January 6th, that Trump, as an advocate for vaccine, is lost in the sort of, in the media ecosystem. I'm still trying to piece that back together because it would be hard pressed to say Trump is it, that in those critical moments when the sort of anti-vax lobby, and it is lobby and people are making money off of it, when that's sort of percolating in those months in December and January, I don't think you could say Trump was at the head of it. And so I'm, I'm confused about that particular. Now he may own it. And if he runs for reelection, he may turn his back and say, I was always against vaccines. They made me do, who knows what he would say. Mm -hmm. But in those critical months of November, December, January, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to say Donald Trump is standing. I mean, he's still the face of a federal effort to try to bring the vaccine into realization. 
Yeah, I, you know, it, it is it is uh, an an instance of where sort of the crowd mentality got out ahead of the leader in this case. I think a couple of factors contributed to it. Um, he got the vaccine, but I think that he, I think acknowledging that a vaccine was required inherently undermined his argument that either it wasn't that bad and, um, you know, COVID is kind of a hoax or that it was sort of a Chinese threat. So he, he got the vaccine, but he did so in private. He didn't do so publicly. A lot of other public officials did. He never really talked about it until recently. And then he got booed. And so he became sort of very wishy-washy about it. His, um, you know, COVID is a hoax. It's the uh, public officials forcing it on you fed very nicely into they're trying to now put something in your body. So it kind of became this whole anti-government agenda that bled very nicely from one idea to the next. I don't think he was the leading voice in the anti-vaccination sort of movement. He certainly helped foster it and he helped lay the groundwork for it. But I agree with you. He wasn't the most vocal proponent of it. Um, I think that, you know, it's one of those sort of, for me at least, it is a political position that does not hold any water. If you dig into it, I am willing to bet that almost every major opponent of the vaccine has had vaccines for measles, smallpox, um, chickenpox, maybe, um, uh, pertussis. Um, you know, Florida, for as I just mentioned, you have to have at least seven vaccines to go to kindergarten. And I'm willing to bet that every single one of these people has been to kindergarten. So, you know, it's it's a um, it's a confounding situation. And they often have these these advocates often have no problem with government authority over other aspects of other people's intimate parts of their lives or their bodies. Um, So it's a very targeted opposition. So I agree with you. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And it is confounding that it happened so quickly. Almost up on time with Lindsay Chavinsky. And I guess I just want to, again, it's always problematic to ask historians to predict the future. So I'm not going to ask you to predict the next election. But <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> but but um, framing what has happened, you know, throughout this pandemic and framing what's happening right now will be uh, a big part of what we hear as we move into the nominating season yeah. after the midterms. Um, and I guess put that back in some historical context for us. You know, you talked about how crises are moments that come to define a presidency. I think, you know, intuitively that makes a lot of sense, but it doesn't always, it takes a skillful party apparatus and a skillful candidate to own parts of it and leave other parts aside. Mm-hmm. If they're running for re-election to, to point to the parts that were successful and try to downplay the parts that were unsuccessful, or if they're running to unseat an incumbent, um, to paint their incumbent as completely incompetent, even though there may have been successful parts of what they did. So I guess I'm just, again, curious what you sort of be watching for as we begin to think about the next election on how COVID will be framed as a presidential issue. Yeah, you know, it's really hard to say because in general, Americans have very short attention spans, um, especially in electoral cycles. And so 
what maybe is front and center today is not necessarily likely to be front and center next fall when there are midterm elections or and especially not a couple years from now. So, you know, I think it depends on how well this vaccine vaccination effort continues to go. There are promising signs that some of the mandates and sort of the business requirements are making an impact. Uh, it depends if there's going to be another uh, variation on, you know, there we had the um, we had sort of the original, then we had the Delta. And so there's a question of whether or not there's going to be another strain. I obviously hope not. If there's not, and people are sort of able to slowly get back to normal or whatever that is going to look like now, I could see COVID actually not playing a particularly large role in the next presidential election. Um, if there continues to be widespread resistance and there is another strain that's developed, then it, then it will be. And I think um, in a lot of ways that would potentially be hung around Biden's neck. And I mean, I, I personally think that would be, there are lots of things that you could take issue with. I think that would be an unfair assignment of blame because he's obviously doing everything he can to get people vaccinated. Um, so, you know, it's, it's an unfair, it's a, it's a challenging situation for me. The biggest thing I'm actually watching is what happens in the midterms. And um, I would be, I would bet an awful lot of money if Republicans take the House and the Senate and then Biden won in 2024. I would bet an awful lot of money that they weren't wouldn't certify that election, which would make the our democracy uh, functionally dead. So I'm really hoping that doesn't happen because I just think that would be a, a tremendously sad way to end this great experiment. Um, so that is what I will be keeping an eye on is is what happens in the midterms and how might that affect the transfer of power and the election process, because until January, I took for granted that we had peaceful transitions of power. And that is um, something I no longer do. Well, you just increased my dread. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know it's a terribly depressing no, note to the end question. <laughs> I walked, I created the trap and then I walked right into it. But, um, but thank you for that. And I, and I think, you know, and we'll have to have you back to talk more because I, I don't, I don't see how we could talk about what happened in January 6, 2021 without talking about the pandemic. So the yeah. making of a constitutional crisis and the making of a public health yeah. crisis are, are there in that same, in that same cooker. So, yeah. um, Lindsay Cherinsky, thank you so much for your time today. A great discussion. I want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. We'll join you right back here next week and please do pencil in. We'll have guests all week. Be sure to pencil in Tuesday for a return visit from guest host Kristen Urquiza, founder of Marked by COVID. So please do join me for that. And just thanking my guest today, presidential historian Lindsay Shravinsky. Um, just a great you know, conversation stretching a broad uh, swath of time. Thanks for your expertise and um, keep up your amazing writing. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I uh, would be delighted to come back again. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next week on COVID Calls.